0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. What are the widely held beliefs about foreign policy, about the interactions of nations that lead us astray when considering potential military action? Richard Tanania is author of the new book, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, where he argues that the public choice perspective is key to understanding the most important aspects of American foreign policy. For people who don't follow foreign policy debates about foreign policy studies uh, very closely, we should probably do some uh, preview uh, like you do in your book. And so briefly describe the unitary actor model and why you think it doesn't hold up so in international
1: relations um yeah the unitary actor model is basically that you treat states as independent actors and you build your model based on that um so it's uh, it's ana- analogous and you know borrowed from uh economics where in microeconomics you take the individual you assume the individual is rational and then you predict a lot you know you predict um uh things about the world and you try to explain the world from that Uh, perspective. Uh, So in international relations, this is basically our starting point. It's not, you know, for everybody, though, the field is very uh, diverse and there's a lot of, you know, debates about different things. But basically, if you're going to say, you know, uh, international relations is based on one thing that makes it different from, uh, you know, anything else in political science, it's the states as unitary actors. And this this means they have uh, you can talk about states like you talk about an individual. They have goals. uh, They have strategies. They have things they want to accomplish and, and ways that they go about trying to accomplish um, Accomplish them. You know they're rational, uh, in the economic uh, sense. And so my my argument in the book is that this is probably this is not a good model. I mean it's it's, it's like all models. It's uh it's imperfect, as even people who subscribe to the model uh, would say. It describes the world in some ways, and certainly doesn't describe the world in other ways. And I guess this is a, you know the my disagreement with a lot of the field is I think it's much less useful um, than they think it than they think it is. I think we understand foreign policy, and we should. In a different way.
0: So, to the extent that people, and you, obviously you have a reason for pointing this out, why uh, does acceptance of that model lead you astray when evaluating the interactions of countries uh, when it comes to our uh, foreign policy?
1: So I have um, uh, some th- uh, the theoretical chapter in the book, and then I have uh, chapters on different parts of American foreign policy. So I go through them and I say, you know, what would a, uh, what would a um, the unitary actor model or, or, the, or actually a grand strategy predict, grand strategy defined as uh, some incorporation between uh, economic tools, military tools, and diplomatic tools, um, in the service of certain goals. Um, so I ask whether a grand strategy model or a, uh, or more of a um, public choice, uh, public choice, uh, model where we relax the, uh, uh, unitary actor model explains various parts of foreign policy. And I argue that in. Area after area, um, the the latter approach works better. So, if you ask why did the U.S. go to Iraq? What was it trying to accomplish in Afghanistan? I mean, the answer is probably not much. I mean, there were short term political decisions made based on uh, certain beliefs and ideas and political interests of the actors involved, and some some actors involved had ideological interests, But there was no there was no uh, person at the top sort of um, uh, making everything sort of the U.S. government was doing uh, coherent. Uh, economic sanctions the same way. How we deal with rival powers is the same way. So, yeah, this is this is sort of the heart of the book,
0: you know, compare and contrast here. We're getting I'm going to get a little off track compare and contrast here. The U.S. Congress decides to go to war uh, and U.S. Congress decides to create a new entitlement program. It seems to me that there's in, in both cases, there are a lot of upfront costs and maybe the people who are in office making that decision aren't particularly concerned about the longer term. Yes.
1: I mean, that's yeah, that's the libertarian perspective, and I, I think it's clearly right. Um, it's uh, you know, Congress doesn't really declare war much, much anymore. I mean, not even in uh, not even in Iraq, they had a vote uh, to authorize force, but it really wasn't a declaration of war. So that, that that pretty much never happens. But but the idea is the same: the president decides to commit troops to a certain uh, region, and you know, people are selected uh, to leadership positions in the in the government not based on their ability to uh, achieve long term goals. They're ba- they're selected because they're Good at short ter- short-term politics, um, so of course, well, you know, why would we be surprised at, uh, by the fact that they're not good at, say, building a democracy in Afghanistan or Iraq? They're they're good at being politicians. Um, yeah, we should always keep that in mind.
0: So, when the United States is uh, pondering some military action, and there are a lot of people calling for military action with respect to Russia, as we record this, um, what should Americans keep in mind? before they decide, yes, this is a good move and we ought to do it.
1: Uh, you you should probably keep in mind that all basically basically how the information landscape um uh, is shaped by concentrated interests. So people who report uh, reporters and um uh who report on foreign policy, they are um they are generally close to the government. They get ahead because they're often given access and they're given scoops and often classified information. I mean, this is sort of this is the norm in uh in foreign policy uh, reporting, and also that there's a lot of money going into think tanks, a lot. Of money going into activism that comes from concentrated interests, including uh, weapons manufacturers, including uh, and they hire uh, people in the government who um, who just retired as whether in the military or uh, civilians who had a prominent role to play in foreign policy. So it's it's hard just you know it's hard for people to. Know what to think of any particular issue because they have no ex- firsthand experience with North Korea or Russia or, y- or Ukraine or any of this. These are just sort of abstract concepts. There are names that they that come up in the in the press and, and politicians talk about them. So it's really hard to know. But I mean, I think you should go through every everything with the understanding that uh, the information sort of landscape is biased in a certain direction.
0: Yeah, and uh, you're talking about uh, how the media discusses war and the options when we're cons- the United States is considering going to war. You make mention uh, in one of your chapters about the Washington Post in 2019 releasing thousands of pages that uh, came to be known as the Afghanistan Papers. It's now a book. I was sh- stunned by really how little coverage that those papers generated.
1: Yeah, I mean the uh, so it's um, yeah, I mean the Washington Post is an interesting case because they um, they have a lot of people who are close to the national security bureaucracy. Their op-ed pages are very very hawkish. I mean they have they have these conservatives like you know Jed Rubin, you know they, these these uh, they have Max Boot on there. I mean these these neocons that's their conservative representation, and their liberals are all pretty much liberal hawks too. And the straight reporters like Bob Woodward, you know they tend to reflect uh, uh, uh and uh, uh David Ignatius they tend to reflect the views of the um, of the foreign policy establishment so a very hawkish paper but, th- but they did some great but they do great reporting too and you know they so they released the Afghanistan papers um and uh, yeah there was a book based on it uh, that came out last year uh, Craig Whit- uh by Craig Whitlock and I, I reviewed it for a recent Magazine yeah it's uh, it got i mean it got in my circles it got a lot of attention. Um, how much attention did it get relative to say, uh, Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, which uh, led to, uh, uh, you know, American, tro- American troops dying and, you know, how, how much and how much uh, coverage did that get compared to uh, the, all the, you know, the casualties of the year, all the, you know, the 20 years of the war before and compared to the um, what's going on in Afghanistan now, which is starving because of American sanctions. Yes, it's very, it's very selective. I mean, p- partly the media has followed I mean, politicians. I mean, the uh, Republicans are the opposition to uh, Biden, and unlike on most issues, the media will give sort of the Republican view, sort of uh, you know, a full airing on on foreign policy because the, the media is more sympathetic towards us, uh, hawkish foreign policy than they are towards anything else that might be called conservative. Uh, so they're so basically, you know, the, the Republicans, you know, went crazy over the Afghanistan withdrawal, a lot of resistance within the bureaucracy, within the administration, and the media, which was it was sort of fertile ground for that, um, and then everything that doesn't help the pro-war agenda whether it's the Afghanistan papers whether it's the civilian casualties I mean the u.s response to the uh, attack from uh, from Isis in uh, Afghanistan you know killed all these um, killed a bunch of civilians and um, that got you know that got covered by like the times you know they did good journalism like these journalistic institutions do but it's nothing compared to you know the, the supposed di- disaster of withdrawal so yeah even if all the information is out there the way it's presented and, and sort of where the emphasis is on
0: put is just always shaped in a certain direction i, I want to reframe a, an earlier question uh, you know what is a broadly held view either among foreign policy elites or the reporters who cover Uh, foreign policy or just the broad public that probably doesn't follow this as closely as you would or as uh, reporters would or foreign policy experts would. What is a broadly held belief uh, that you say is that you would argue is just it's just not true. And it uh, gives us uh, incorrect conclusions when it comes to decisions about war and peace.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a gr- that's a great question. So I think one of them is um, that the that the U.S. is basically an upholder of international stability. I mean, if you look at the last twenty years, the U.S. has either started or supported a civil war in at least half a dozen countries in the Middle East. I mean, you have Afghanistan, you have Iraq, you have uh, uh, Libya, which you know the, the, these these places sometimes had conflicts before, but the U.S. just poured gasoline on the fire, just removed the government in Libya, uh, you know, replaced it with nothing. And like, why would you think that would end up being good? I mean, that's that often ends up being terrible trying to overthrow the government in Syria. I mean, there's no country in the world that really is such a force for instability like the U- like the U.S. is. And that's also um, based on the sanctions regime. So like when Russia will, you know, invade a country or will, uh, will uh, uh, you know, interfere in their domestic politics, that happens too. Russia, has, you know, and Russia probably, you know, started or is responsible for uh, pouring gas on the fire in one civil war um, in the Ukraine, um, and the but the U.S. has done it, done it several times, and so I think if you're going to say you know who uh, who's uh, basically worse for international stability, it's the U.S. And that's not even including the sanctions regime, where the U.S. shuts off countries from the entire global economy with the goal of regime change, with with basic the goal that the the people will rise up. But it never happens. I mean, but that's that's sort of uh, you know sort of civil war is sort of the goal. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty crazy, um, and so there's that. I think that there's uh, another important thing is there is a uh, sense that the U.S. is like uh, just so morally superior to its um, uh, uh, to, to its adversaries, and so you know, so I mean, the you know, I think the idea is even if we get people to acknowledge that the Afghanistan war was a disaster, the Iraq war was a disaster, sanctions are you know bad and they have massive humanitarian effects. I think people are under the impression, well, you know, the government means well, and these are just sort of naive mistakes. And if you're going to say that about the U.S., you could say that about you know russia or china they 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 see they see things from their own perspective and they think they're uh they think they're doing the right thing for their country and so you know if they do bad things and we say you know sometimes they make evil decisions um i think we have to look at the us the same way and so if you judge i think by by harm actually done uh, i think american foreign policy i really think there's no there's no competition with any other country of the last several decades
0: Richard Hanania is author of Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.